All right. Let's see. What was the name of our podcast? Never say something good about Matt. Yeah. That yeah, that's right. I think we'd get more clicks. <laughs> well, welcome everyone to another episode of Never Stay Dead. I am Damien, and I am here with my good buddy Matt. Hi, Matt. Hello, Internet. And uh, today is kind of like the third of a trilogy that we're doing. Yeah. I don't think we'll be doing any more of this type of thing anytime soon. But this is a the third um, Chris Claremont X-Men spinoff miniseries that we're covering. Uh, we did the, the very first Wolverine series, the four issues with uh, Claremont and... Miller, and then mm. we did the um, what was it called? It's got magic. a magic name, the Magic and Storm series with Claremont and a number of different uh, artists: Ron Friends and Sal Buscema and John Buscema. <laughs> and so, we were through the ringer to get through. <laughs> and now uh, the final one is a six-issue miniseries called Kitty Pride and Wolverine. It came out in 1985. I. Th- I'm trying to remember the did the Wolverine one originally come out in eighty two. I can't remember. I think it was. I think it was eighty three. Then Magic was eighty four, and then this was. So maybe there was one each year. Right? Was this eighty four? Yeah, this was eighty four. So Kitty and Wolverine is eighty four. Magic was eighty three. Oh, was and then it? Wolverine okay. was eighty two. My my Marvel app got the date wrong then. I, I'm looking at the published comic and copyright November '84. So they're all. They're, it's interesting to me anyway because each one he's uh, Chris Claremont's teaming up with different artists, and I definitely see the differences. But we can talk about more of that about that more later. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I can really quickly just sort of sum it up in this one. Kitty Pride tries to rescue her father from Yakuza in Japan and in the process becomes enslaved by this ninja assassin guy who works with the Yakuza, whose name, do you remember his name? I can't remember his name now. Uh, he's this guy who wears a devil mask. Ogun. So he somehow projects his soul into Kitty in some way and kind of puts her through some kind of brutalizing brainwashing training and uh and then wolverine kind of rescues her from him and does his own brutal brainwashing training to undo and free her soul at least somewhat and then, i take issue with that but we'll get there okay and then uh they have a big fight with the ogan guy I'm, I'm the, really simplifying. Yeah, and the Ogun guy is just a lieutenant for the uh, Yakuza head who was in charge of the problem with uh, Pride's dad, who we find out isn't so innocent by the end of everything anyways. Right. He's He's been co-opted by, the, by them to la- launder money, I guess, through the bank that he runs. And he's oddly named, what's his name, like Carmine or something? And that's a Carmine's an odd name for someone who's Jewish. That's a very Italian name, but maybe he's Italian and Jewish. <laughs> Italian Jews, man. I mean, Kitty's a weird name for anyone. Carmine Pride. 
And so uh, Kitty has to battle her devils and uh, stand up for herself in the end. Yeah. Well, I don't know what your take on it is, but my quick take is this this brings together themes of the first two miniseries. I was going to say this is basically an amalgamation of Wolverine and magic. Right. With Wolverine kind of taking Storm's role and... Yeah, 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 the whole Japanese connection. And, and Kitty yeah. gets, you know, like magic is abused by um, that demon guy. Now I can't remember his name either. Uh, Kitty gets kind of abused by, and, well, the adult Kitty abused magic in the strange dimension also. Um, abused yeah. Ileana in a training kind of way. So that's kind of the role that Wolverine takes on here there's kind of a yes but there but i i feel like maybe we should start digging into the first issue and kind of okay because we're talking about like themes and stuff and putting a little meat on the bone might yeah make more sense for our readers or listeners possibly (laughs) so this first issue is really a kitty pride solo which is right i think the second or third time this has basically happened because she's had a few of her own little adventures through x-men but this is still kind of a big moment for the character right and she's still even despite the adventures she had with the x-men she still seems like an innocent yeah a bit naive and i don't know like like any very young teenager perhaps who thinks they can handle much more than they can and that sort of thing right but she is on her own and i think she's maybe part of what they're saying is maybe she has a bit of false confidence because she's relied on those around her and doesn't necessarily fully realize kind of the weight of what she's been going through some of the danger of it even i think that's part of what's being gotten at here so she's i can't remember the reason she's not with the x-men she's staying with her dad for a while she went to go visit her dad um for the holidays basically i mean that's all it is is she's taking some time off to be with family and i guess her dad runs a small town bank like maybe with just one branch or something <laughs> or maybe yeah it's bigger than that. financial officer and yeah he, we find out that he has some dealings with some japanese businessmen here who it's clear very quickly are not real businessmen are more like gangsters Hey, I at mean, least to me as a reader, <laughs> you know, running a gang's real business, man. So they say, and so they they are just decide to take her father with them to Japan, which you know it's not super clear why they would want to do that. I think it's so he can't necessarily run off; like his time's up for whatever the deal is, and we're kind of kept in the dark along with Kitty about what the deal is. But he's being whisked off to Japan to negotiate the problem with this deal and she senses something's up and follows which is fun uh sneaks aboard another flight using her phasing power but they make a point here which is interesting for kitty about she's in this like uh ballerina dance uniform kind of thing and it it like outs her as being out of place and kind of too young and it, it's something that happened with Kitty a lot, where like these weird outfits, because she was a young girl who liked playing dress up and, you know, putting on these kinds of things. And 
that's something we see as kind of almost a theme or character departure as we go through the series is this is i mean a symbol of like innocence and youth mm-hmm. so uh, but it's played for a bit of laughs and fun here this first issue is actually a really fun solo adventure with kitty the only bit of wolverine we get is she calls for help and he's on the other end of the line for a hot minute and that's it i did not find it to be that fun though <laughs> well okay i don't know i just had trouble buying into it why <laughs> i the stakes are not too high here i don't know i just felt a little bored uh, I think, as we sort of mentioned off off mic before, uh, the art turned me off quite a bit. And I felt that, uh, particularly in this first issue, it was just very boring to look at. And, and that's, to me, in my imagination anyway, since it's the Marvel method where you know, the artist gets a plot, then when the art comes back, the writer puts on the dialogue. That something in the boringness of the art made the um, the shenanigans with, with Kitty just felt very generic or something. See, I never felt the art was boring. There's a lot of different angles. Things are moving. Like, it's really pretty darn good comic book art. Now, I mean, hmm. does it compare to, like, the Frank Miller stuff we were looking at before? Not necessarily, but I mean... Like that lightning scene with her walking on air, you get kind of this trepidatious yeah. feeling that it's not just her flying, like it's a struggle, but it's possible for her to do this kind of thing. Uh, it's kind of emotive and expressive. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not the best. Though what's funny to me is, to me, this feels more like a DC comic of the era for the art, more it so does. than a Marvel it comic. It does. It's very much like a DC era. It does not, despite this page that we're talking about and looking at, uh, being a, a pretty cool page it has to me that flatness that dc comics had where also i mean not not having to really to do with dc or marvel but uh to me the faces are all weak okay but so and it may not be the fault of the art but i felt like i was spending a lot of time you know with kitty deep in her thoughts going from a to b to c to d just kind of I don't know. It's just too straightforward and nothing particularly interesting about it. Even though she's having a hard time and she's she's trying to find a place to stay and has no money and is getting cold and wet and eventually I think gets a fever or maybe that's the next issue. I mean, she does get a bit sick. And I mean, like, that's coming from here and you feel the weight of the weather. And that's something I like about this Claremont era of X-Men is the weight of, like, travel and doing some of the things they're doing and doing the stuff without superpowers or whatever. It's felt and it's in a much more grounded world where they're not just capable of doing anything magically to service the plot. But, you know, there's weight to a lot of these different things that make it feel more visceral in a lot of ways and i see what you mean with like the faces like any of the minor characters that's kind of minimalistic but well even kitty's face i don't think there's much done with it i anyway it's an art style it may just be me it's an art style that i i don't like and and i do think you're right it 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 looks kind of like maybe 70s dc art well and if you go back one 
this one or yeah like the rising sun over Uh japan like there's a lot of fun little touches and stuff that's very comic book art that i i just really like and the the, i mean and whereas i mean i have to say el milgram eh, but the colorist on this book like really did a lot for mood and visual diversity and playing this up and the colorist was glennis ween all right, um, and she was a good colorist in the uh, '70s and '80s. I think one of the best at Marvel. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I, we I have a different reaction to the art, and that I think that's maybe for for me a big reason why I I was slow to get into this. It took a number of issues. Okay. But you know, you make a good point of, or I think you were making a point of. You know, superheroes who aren't so super like we seem to be used to now. She has a lot of struggles. And later when Wolverine is on the on the scene, he gets easily injured and needs time to recover and, you know, is mm-hmm. under threat of possibly being killed. And you know, the, the, well, the stakes are, are higher in a sense because they aren't like gods with their power, you know. If I may, I, like, I think what you said is a fair interpretation, basically, of what, what I was saying. But in a way, to me, it actually makes their superpowers feel more super. Uh, because... Because they're more part of the real world. Right. Yeah. And so the fact that normal people could do something to them, like, any of the guards could have taken out Kitty, it felt like. But because she's phasing and pushing herself to limit, using all of her talents and skill that makes it more exciting and more super to me as opposed to they're just goons. So they're dealt with post haste. You know, going back to the early Stanley and Steve Ditko where Spider-Man gets colds and things like that. She's, she has problems. She can't figure out how to get money. And when she tries mm-hmm. to get money, the, poli- the police alarm goes off. And, and so that doesn't work. And then she's cold and she can't find shelter. And she has real problems, you know, that can't be solved easily by her superpowers. And that makes the superpowers, like you're saying, stand out. The fact she's having all these troubles, but she can walk on air. You know, it makes the walking on air seem more real because all the troubles are real. Yes, it's that old Marvel flavor. That That's a great way of pointing to it. That really, I, that was kind of the joy of it. And it's funny because you say that stuff, but I mean, this was the 80s and that was the 60s. like, And that was carried through. And I guess that was dropped basically around the 90s for the most part. We've kind yeah. of lost that. If I'm remembering the 80s properly, there was kind of a big revival of the hero's weaknesses. Daredevil got much more easily beat up, right? And mm-hmm. Iron Man alcoholism became a real thing rather than just he's always shown with a drink and that's fine um so they maybe for a while during the jim shooter period were leaning into the the humanity the human frailty of of characters yeah everyone's favorite editor jim shooter right (laughs) you know jim shooter i think loved al milgram and this is very this is the kind of artwork jim shooter liked he wanted it to be more basic lots of small panels um sort of focusing on the mechanics of storytelling rather than being big and splashy you know which changed entirely you know with the todd mcfarland era 
I have no basis for this. I don't know if you know, was Al Milgram relatively fast? Was he kind of a Bagley of his day? I don't know. Al Milgram was also an editor at Marvel. Okay. Huh. So he, I think he was part of kind of Jim Shooter's cadre of people, but I don't know if he was fast because initially he was more known as an inker. And then, and then I'm pretty sure he was an editor at this point. Maybe he had stopped being an editor at this point, but during the first half of the eighties, I mostly knew him as an editor. And then during the late seventies, I knew him as an inker. Okay. I don't know anyone as an inker. So <laughs> he did a lot of inking over Jim Starlin during some of Jim Starlin's uh, major works, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, and I'm not sure what happened to Milgram after the Jim Shooter period, if he's still around. He's also, I think he's pretty well known for a long run on Avengers West Coast, which I really haven't read very much of. I have the last issue. There's some people who are really big fans of the Avengers West Coast run. Sure. There's From big fans of every Warriors. There's big fans of Slingers. You know, there's a bunch of nerds. Well, out there. I think there's only two fans of Slingers in the world. Oh, who's the other one? <laughs> Your old co-host. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I guess maybe. <laughs> I mean, I know he wasn't as big a fan as you, but I thought you had converted him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so issue two of Kitty Pride and Wolverine entitled, and every one of these has like a single word title, um, Terror, uh, is where the meat of the story like this is the end of the first act this is where things get dire but there's a lot here and this is where the connection to magic happens um the connection she, to the but just to be clear the connection to the plot structure of magic or the themes yes. of magic there's no yes. connection to the character magic in this story well kitty pride and her are best friends were they this time um, <laughs> so yeah, so she's in the building where her dad's being held in Japan. She goes to save him. Things go kind of awry. And Ogan shows up in his Oni mask. Oni. Ah, uh, there he is. He wasn't in the mask at first, but then when he chases after her, he goes in the mask. Yeah, he spends a lot of time in the mask, so I guess that's kind of... But but this is him here, right? With the little beardy thing? I think so, yeah. Because he has to look creepy. I think one thing is this. I didn't understand who he was. You know, so at first it was confusing to me. Like, why does he want Kitty and payment for what? And it's not explained until later. You know, I guess he can see immediately she's got some special powers that he can make use of and is innocent enough that he can take over her soul. He knocks her out, and then we have this bit with Wolverine, which is pretty fun of him going through a metal detector and him having some special permission from the Canadian government to fly, basically. Yeah, it's funny. I forgot that there were metal detectors in airports back in 1984. Um, I guess I've just forgotten about that. I thought all that came after 9-11. But anyway. Oh, there were metal detectors before, yeah. Um, but yeah, here we start getting this, like, he paralyzes this... her and waves his sword around her a lot. Yeah. And so she's unable to access her power, really even move because she's basically been nicked. 
so that like she barely has enough to remain conscious basically is my understanding and then he takes away her hair which was something that also seemed to happen with magic a bit like the way her hair was styled like kind of denoted where she was as a person and like with magic and belasco that was his name there's a sense of not actually on the page but a sense of almost a sexual violation of a young girl by an older man there's a feeling of at least a rape of her soul <laughs> if not her body right though I-, I will say it feels like claremont maybe thought about and realized he went a bit too far with magic or something the way right. it's handled with kitty feels like kind of an answer to that with magic like it happens to kitty yeah, who's i think you're right who's young but older um so it's not as like it's still right. bad but it's palpable and graspable as right. a story and not just so revolting um yeah and, way- and it, it's not there there's no actual chance here for him to have done that it just feels like he did it on a metaphorical level yeah i i mean i get corruption i didn't necessarily get the sexual tones there well he removes but, a lot but, of her clothing in the process and that's true cutting you away of her right. hair seems symbolic of somehow something that's no now that you're saying it you're right um but it's not as, just... as uh, overt as with magic where she talks a lot about sort of her attraction to him or oh. the pleasure of the evil or something and, and in the next page with her falling down into herself i guess yeah um I, it could be that my mind just didn't want to go there so Maybe I was just kind of omitting some of those details. Well, and maybe it's me seeing the connection with magic and in magic feeling more that sense, you know, sort of adding it in because of the connection between the two. But with Belasco, that was kind of the focus of that. Whereas here, the focus is more on the reshaping of Kitty. And And she has turned into a baby. Her, Her clothes are disappearing, but it's because she's a baby in diapers right and then he kind of builds her back up in her mind so she like had this second lifetime that she went through with this training with him which is why she uh, to skip ahead a bit when she comes out on the other side of this she's more or less under his control but essentially a a ninja yeah so she's kind of through his mental his mental kung fu (laughs) she's been trained as a ninja within a week or something um, inside her brain rebuilt in his image yeah and then at the tail end of this we see wolverine show up (laughs) and his presence is known and so basically um kitty is tasked to deal with him she's kind of a well maybe this is more apparent in the next issue uh she's kind of almost uh i don't think she talks anymore and she she's kind of like a not a zombie but she becomes monosyllabic a zombie in the sense of old voodoo zombies like someone who's being controlled by a witch doctor or something it's very akin to that because her soul's kind of like tethered and controlled i feel like this is an old martial arts trope um is it okay i haven't come across it before 
I feel like this has happened in like uh, Iron Fist and stuff too. Like this okay. was more of the time where we had more martial arts comics and that kind of idea, which made this more fun for me too because we don't get as much of that anymore. And so it's more of a thrill when I read it now. Though I guess we're having a slight renaissance with the Iron Fist and Shang-Chi comic coming out. I haven't read um, either of them, but... I, I haven't either, but I know that they are there. I just... <laughs> But I mean, pages like that, uh, like if you can go back. This action sequence. D does that not do anything for you? Like, come on, that's very like Ninja Turtles to me. Eh, well, I mean, Ninja Turtles is not my point of reference uh, to enjoying comics. Sorry to say. I, I can't understand. I, I never read that Ninja sentence. Turtles all the way through until I met you. So it doesn't have that uh, primal primal comic book love thing going on to me i guess it's it's at best okay fight scenes it's not it's like al milgram wanted to be like frank miller here but i don't think he's up to it his his art doesn't have the impact for me oh i don't think this is necessarily trying to be frank miller uh, um, to me it looks a lot like it's trying to be frank miller this looks to me like it's trying to be a Iron Fist Shang Chi moment. Like this is a martial arts. Well, thing. the the action that's going on, but the way it's uh, laid out on the page and the the way that's sequenced seems like a Frank Miller sequence, just not done as well. Oh come on, you don't hear that? Da -na -na. <laughs> like obviously, it's tying into your love of a certain kind of cheesy martial arts and i totally respect that but it, it didn't work that way for me um i was more viewing it as like oh i could see how frank miller or paul galacy or someone else would draw this and this seems very minor by comparison it, it come out like the color of like yellow like danger and then darker and dar darker until you get to the red kill shot it is good coloring, you're right. And I I just have to say thank you to Costa for pointing out red was the color for kill shot. I didn't know that till he said that to me. Like God, that was a decade ago or something, wasn't it? Um close but, to that, yeah. Does John DeCosta listen to this uh podcast? I'd be interested. I, if he out. does, he should let me know. I don't know. Well, anyway, so you were you were really digging the fight scenes and and the the whole evocation of of kung fu and ninjas yeah, i don't think this is the best art ever but i thought it was darn good so for you it's like a really cool uh you know martial arts movie well that part yeah definitely and then we have the other stuff which is like the good play on claremont's like a good play into what claremont was doing with the issue and that's the other thing too is every issue in this mini kind of has some different stuff and uh i know i enjoy that like in this third issue in this i mean this is where the wolverine mini kind of comes back and where it becomes almost a sequel to that one where we get yukio and wolverine meeting up and having their moment or did i say the wrong one no i think you're right i think, I think it's yukio yukio is is the bad girl and mariko is the good girl of his that's Japanese right yeah girlfriend. so yeah i was there it's very odd because i mean i just don't 
remember anything about the X-Men so much at this era. It's from the context of the book, it seems like uh, Wolverine has some kind of uh, relationship with Mariko, but he still also apparently is palling around in a sexual way with Yukio. Yeah. He's he's doing them both. Yeah, I, I have... Uh, it gets my Catholic, Catholic uh, boy all turned up here that's it's not even that bad it's just that uh yukio is willing and mariko has basically cut him off and so he knows that's not going to happen but that's who he loves uh-huh. but doing yeah, stuff with this my, other my girl true when it love happens, is doesn't... down the block but since she, right now she's frigid i'm gonna have sex well mariko's married to another man so it's just really? not it's oh. not there yeah but they talk about sharing a adopted child together wolverine and mariko Oh, yeah, right. Maybe. Uh, sorry, I might be. Sorry, that confusion comes for me because I am currently in the 160s part of Uncanny X-Men. And there's something that probably shifts because this takes place around the 180s issue mark of. Maybe into like 190s. Um, so there's some disconnect for me and uh yeah. So. <laughs> well, yeah. So I don't really know what his relationship with Mariko is at this time, but it it definitely seems like he's doing both of them in a, from the context of the story, which I don't know. Even though he's like the animalistic guy, I, I guess I thought he'd be a little more faithful, especially because Mariko's supposed to be the big true love. Well, it's kind of like the Deadpool romance between Teresa and Vanessa and Deadpool keeps going back to Vanessa because she's available, but Teresa is the one he truly loves. And so it's like the better half versus the side and, you know, lust versus love. And sometimes, you know, one L takes over. So Wolverine's on Deadpool's level then. More or less. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It strikes strikes the wrong note for me in the way I imagine Wolverine to be, but there you have it. It's right there. I'm not Chris Claremont. He is, and that's what he decided should be happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have this whole issue, and then uh, eventually Wolverine's being tracked by this character with a sword in the Oni mask, much like Ogun, but we find out at the end... That it's Kitty. That it's Kitty. I guess I knew all along it was Kitty. Were you at all surprised? I, at first, I didn't necessarily connect it because it's so... Like, Wolverine's just dealing with this character. And we've, we're dealing with all these ninjas and stuff. It's kind of noise. And then when it starts getting more serious, it's like, oh, oh, right. And then you see the outfit in a little more detail because I pull on closer. And... um I, I didn't know at first, but I knew before the reveal, mm-hmm. which was kind of cool. Like it has that moment of allowing it to be a bit of a mystery so that if you're keen enough, you can figure it out. And if you don't figure it out, you know, at first blush because of the one tiny tell, like there's a few and some build. And so the fact it does it like that, I think makes it a little more fun and a little more telling and, even Wolverine has that point where he says, I didn't want to believe it, but I already knew. Um, and then the mask comes off and it's Kitty. And then Kitty 
does a death shot on him, basically a sword through the heart, which takes Wolverine. Well, Wolverine will never stay dead, but that was pretty shocking to have Wolverine to seeing her stab the sword through Wolverine because it's like the ultimate kind of reversal of what she should be and of their relationship. I don't know. That was a powerful moment, and especially putting myself back in this world where where bad things can happen to these characters. They aren't they aren't uh, impervious. And then we get issue four. And then before we go into issue four, th- this image will take mm-hmm. more significance as we talk about the issue. But I love this cover. I wish I could get a poster of this. I think this is incredible. Like this is my favorite image with Wolverine on it. I I uh... huh. See, I'm too distracted by what, by what I view as very bad drawing by Al Milgram. It's not that bad, at least. Um, They're kind of making the sign of the cross or something. How do you? What, what's the power of this cover for you? Well, so uh, as we'll discover as we go through, um, this holding the sword like this is a training. Oh, right, right. He's training her strength to hold up the sword. But he's holding the sword in, in this pose, like he's about to strike over her. Um, it's this very just like martial arts and training, and the lines are all there. It's just this very like solemn idea with patience and whatnot. It it, it speaks to the issue. I I think it's a perfect cover, frankly. Like for this issue, it's it just it evokes that feeling of like being at the dojo and like struggling, but like pushing yourself and learning, which is what this issue is about. So this issue rebirth after death, which is signifying Kitty Mm -hmm. who is now being pulled away from Ogun's training. But when we open the issue, we're actually on, we're on, on a road. Is it with Yukio? Yeah. Yukio who's dealing with Kitty's dad. there's something about that that's really fun because there's some characters in x-men that like basically never meet and there's some that do and it feels wrong oh and then they're all all four of them are in the car kitty's dad um yukio and the the still zombified or you know uh possessed kitty yeah he was tied up and the dying seemingly dying wolverine Mm -hmm. who's slowly curing himself while looking dead and the f- and suddenly Kitty's father can't believe that that's her because it doesn't really look like her. I was unclear. Does does Kitty's father understand who the X Men are? Or does he know who Wolverine is? Does he know that Kitty has these powers? I mean, he knows more or less who the X Men are. I don't think he necessarily knows who Wolverine really is. Like, I think he's passively familiar. But the X Men keep Wolverine. At this point, you have to remember X Men keep Wolverine on the down low. He's the black sheep of the team because he's the killer. But there's a lot of talk about Xavier having him on the team, what that represents, what that means. And that was something that was kind of interesting especially in the face right now of um Hoxpox, of what that meant for claremont's run with x-men and doing that with wolverine meant like there's a point where you're doing this thing that the x-men are doing where some people have to be killed and that's kind of what wolverine represented right and that was a big deal but it was also kept on the down low so yeah, I don't believe he knew who Wolverine really was, but right. I think he knew, for, like, for he could instance, name him. 
like her father, Carmine, is there with a bunch of people he knows to be gangsters, and one of them, or the the main boss, gives Carmine's daughter to another one of them. And they tell him, you just have to deal with it and keep doing what we tell you. They don't even say you'll ever get your daughter back or anything. He doesn't... You would think he would rebel against his masters at the point that they steal his only daughter from him. He can't because they'll kill him at that point, and that's recognized. But as a father, you'd rather die trying than just let someone take your daughter away from you. Especially, he's not presented as someone who's like a bad father. He's just a foolish or corrupt businessman. And and if he knows that the X-Men existed, why didn't he try to contact them? I... And why didn't he try to contact anybody, do anything to save his daughter? Well, because he, well, the reason he didn't contact the X-Men up until this point is because he's keeping it secret. And he thought he was handling it up until he was deep in it. And throughout it, he's feeling helpless and he's basically being strung along through events. I think you're right. At a certain point, he should have maybe protested more, but he's at his lowest point and narratively it's not until the very end of the story that we'll get to where there's a bit of redemption him trying to rebuild himself which is basically where he's set off from so whereas i think you might have a point i think i think it'd be fair to say that you are a better father than he is and your perception of that is maybe a bit off because at this point he's being played as a schmuck and we see him being presented as much lower than kitty and narratively for kitty that's important because her father not being heroic or doing any of the right things in the face of it is a big part of a speech wolverine has with him uh-huh. and um for the, the story out, it interfere makes sense. in any way by accident or design this is uh this the ninja guy talking to to carmine and your destruction will be terrible as it is certain do we understand each other it's still it's an amazingly passive character right well at this point he's held over a barrel um the only the barrel is his life but well more than his life but yes they don't say she'll live unless you try to find her or anything he's not he's only motivated by his own survival not by hers he hasn't been well, painted also one way or another he knows kitty has been doing these things and roughly her abilities like he knows her superpower but the upper limits of her abilities i don't think he's necessarily fully aware of because he hasn't been around so um the idea that she might be able to save herself more so than just some little girl i think is something you have to consider would be in the back of his head like she could just walk away it would have to be something in his mind because she effectively normally could so i I, i'm willing to give a little bit more bandwidth there i guess like i don't know if you knew your kid had the ability to phase that's something you and i couldn't consider it would have i don't know it would have been more convincing to me. See, he can't understand the Japanese, so he doesn't really know what's going on. They could tell her, we're just keeping your daughter for a little while. You have to, so you continue to um, aid us. That would then strengthen their hold over him. But just threatening his life, but telling him, you'll never see your daughter again, and you, you know, we can do whatever we want with her. 
for most fathers would would kind of sour the deal <laughs> i i agree the other thing that you're not considering here that's interesting to me is this pretty quickly once they move into japan becomes a lot more like a samurai film mm-hmm. or something from japan where this sort of thing is like gross and dire but happens in these kinds of narratives and stories and so it fits okay i think because i was already uh, i i was already of a mindset to be picky about this story for whatever reason most partially starting with the being kind of bored with the first issue it did really pick up afterwards but i already was kind of prejudiced against it for some reason I think your nitpick is completely valid. I just think there's some reasons you should maybe wait against it a bit. Like, I don't think it's like a failing or a plot hole or anything. I I think it's a weird, it's a bit of a character thing that fits the theme and motivation and the needs for other characters. But for the character himself, it is a bit like he should, there should be a bit more pushback or something that could have been handled and satisfied most of these other things i'm talking about it is probably a weakness of the story definitely so well one of the really interesting things again in this issue that we don't have visuals for for the video but is this story from way back when of two samurai meeting at a bridge and neither one wants to be let the other one pass first and they look into each other's eyes for a long time and somehow within their minds play out a fight and then realize they're equal, equally skilled and so neither one, they each go their own way and neither one crosses the bridge. And then... That felt very Ronin to me. The, the Frank Miller Ronin? Yeah, yeah, the kind of like tail within a tail, the whole samurai thing, and then the fact that they go like star- storybook for it. Uh, I did like Milgram's art in that part where he really simplified things because he's already kind of a simple artist that. Um, like that's that panel there as they walk away from the bridge. That's really cool. So to give, to not be anti. And again, I think it's more simple because the colors, like every object is a single palette that reveal. And then we revealed that one of those samurai was our bad guy. So he's immortal. He can mind control people. He taught and this is another area that bugs me. He taught Wolverine everything he knows. How many stories have we had about people who've taught Wolverine? He taught Wolverine everything he knows about being a samurai. Which is significant given what we learned about what that means to Wolverine from the last mini. But he didn't teach Wolverine everything he knows, which actually comes up in the next issue. Really? Because I thought there were several times where he says, well, he's... He's the one who totally made me. He he's the yeah yeah. Well, because at that point Wolverine was the beast, and then this was him becoming the man. Was when he learned this, but it's all backstory and stuff. But I'm just gonna jump ahead to it in issue five. We we get a we get a we get a moment with Xavier. I think it's five, or is it this issue? Um, where Xavier calls and basically says, you know, Guardian. It. and the guardian is the person who made him everything he is they both are right what, what does he say about well the so that's the thing though is like so ogun made him a man not just a beast from whatever point he remembers and then guardian made him 
a member of society from the place he was from. And so it was all these different places. And it's kind of funny because the only reason the Guardian thing comes up is to kind of satisfy a bit of continuity that was happening within X-Men at the time that they had to deal with because Wolverine is the second or third biggest character from that book who's absent for a moment. They just need to address like a couple of big things that were happening while he's gone for half a year dealing with this. And so it's interesting to see that, but it's interesting to see these two big influences on Wolverine's life and how it's affecting him at the same time and how much it weighs on him simultaneously. I don't know. For me, that was weird uh, that, that this guy was the most important person in his history. Uh, fair enough. And especially because he is, he's a demon. <laughs> He, he's a well he's a man who wears a demon mask and is immortal and can control people's minds well he didn't control wolverine's mind how come he could control kitty's mind but not wolverine's and why would he train because wolverine? wolverine was a beast and kitty was an innocent child and if he's so crucial to who wolverine is a person why isn't old wolverine more evil <laughs> Well, isn't he? I, that was part of it at the time was he was considered really like morally dubious. Now we have a different picture of Wolverine. But at the time he was he was the Punisher, basically like he was. But he was he had a moral code. Barely. He was willing to do things that maybe don't fit other people's moral code. But for instance, in that um, in that first mini, the very first thing they do in that is show his moral code with the bear and hunt, getting the hunter who is really responsible for using a poison on the bear and driving it wild. And so he was very concerned about who is responsible and uh, exacting justice in a rougher way than Professor Xavier would or something. But Well, also, I mean, to some people, the fact that he would equate a grizzly bear's life to that of a human's would be showing that he's more bestial. I think... No, but the grizzly had killed some people, and it was because the hunter had hunted the grizzly in a illegal and unjust, immoral way by using a poison on it and not doing a a clean kill. Sorry, I'm I'm getting very vociferous about this, so I don't mean to be attacking you or anything. Oh no no no! I I, I think it's interesting to narrate this. It's just to me like. I, I think you're right. He, he it is a My, the point I'm making is I'm piling as I'm reading this I'm piling up little details that bother me because I started out not liking the first issue. So there's lots of good stuff here, and I don't mean to put down your enjoyment of it. I just enjoy showing you how it irritated me. <laughs> That's fair. I just I feel like Wolverine at this point in comics history is a bit of a different character than the way we understand him more currently post his third death or whatever and so i i think it's interesting but knowing that i mean the only character that's maybe considered somewhat of a hero but is more morally black than him is the punisher who's going to probably be re-examined soon no you you are very right he was the epitome of the anti-hero, heroic but not really a hero kind of character in Marvel at those at that time, uh, a very common kind of character in in comics later on, but um, but fairly unique at that time. With the Punisher, uh, 
just beginning to be developed, right? He exists, the Punisher existed, but he wasn't very developed until, until around this time also. When did the, when was that? Because wasn't Conway's run in the 70s? Yes. Con, the Punisher was uh, introduced in the mid 70s. Oh, but wasn't really the Punisher until later. It was probably the 80s. It was probably 84 or 83. I don't really know. Because um, I'm not a, I'm not a big, I haven't followed the history of the Punisher very much. Yeah, he kind of sucks. Uh, I don't know. He's, he's some people's big favorite, even Ghost Critic's favorite. Um, so I just haven't read enough of him to know how they developed him. I, he's, he's a character that is very different depending on whose hands he's in. But that's a different... <laughs> what I'm really saying here is one of my complaints, one of the reasons I didn't like this series as much as others is that stuff about Wolverine's past is thrown out there, but it's not really explored and developed enough to satisfy me. Like, yeah, it would be really cool. His And maybe it was in some other comic that I haven't read. It would be really cool that um, there's this evil, demonic, immortal ninja who trained Wolverine in his early days, and they have a close relationship. But I felt pretty dissatisfied by the way it was just glossed over here thrown out there and then yeah i there's stories that deal with Ogun later if they're by close caramon i suppose well there's parts of it and a lot of it's actually fairly recent well maybe they're still good anyway so this all worked for you more than <laughs> but, me, i guess but i have to say issue five has a great well, splash but, page where um or were we not on issue five hold on before we get to five <laughs> so part of the reason why i think wolverine works here despite some of the stuff you're saying is this complexity of the character and as much as you don't like it a lot of him was shrouded in mystery at the time we didn't know his name was logan until you know later we didn't know he could read japanese until that one issue of uncanny we talked about recently so like here kitty is left to a zen garden and wolverine lets her go at it and then when she handles it flawlessly she realizes what's going on with her basically and wolverine puts it to her and then that's when we actually get the training sequence of her holding the sword and it's the idea of hold it as long as you can she says you know how long has it been hours and he says like under five i didn't really understand that is it Um, supposed to be so heavy or is there something spiritual going on there no it's just fucking hard to do man um (laughs) like have you ever tried to hold something out at full length i guess it's hard i guess for a long yeah for over a minute it's hard the thing is a sword is not heavy so it shouldn't be a big deal but when you're the thing is is this is an actual martial arts principle that people are trained with especially in kendo and so that was really cool to see and where we get to is we have these kind of like training and this back and forth and you said earlier that wolverine put her through this sadistic training and so i was wrong on that because this was just standard martial arts training well it's rough but wolverine makes the point like she always is making the choice to continue she's choosing to do this is it rough yes is it hard yes is it unfair yes 
Is she doing it for a reason? Yes. Is there is time of the essence? Yes. Like there, there's a lot going into it. And Wolverine's known when he's dealing with um training people in this era, basically up until we actually have Wolverine and the X-Men, he's known as kind of a hard taskmaster. Did did when you did martial arts training, you have to run in the snow, and when you fell in the snow and twisted your ankle, you had to just lay there till you could get up? I did twist my ankle during uh, my black belt test, and I had to keep going. But I mean, this this has shades of that scene in with with the adult Kitty Pride and Magic, where she's forcing her to run and she's falling down. And... He's saying whatever happens doesn't matter you have to persevere it's rough it's hard it's not fair it's yeah it's not but it's not sadistic he's not saying he's not forcing her he's saying you need to i'm gonna leave you out in the snow it's tough love and desert you he knows she's he knows she can survive he's pushing her i mean she didn't ask for this she is and then it seems to me like brainwashing technique. I hate to put down your martial arts training, but it's not brainwashing her to what? I don't know. What how can how come this brings her soul back to be martial arts trained when it was martial arts training that took her soul from it her? It wasn't martial arts training that took her soul from her. It was a mental invasion. That wasn't actually happening. That was implanted in her mind. It was in her brain, but it she was going through she was throwing stars and doing other But she wasn't actually doing it. This is real. That is like any story that's about like the fantasy versus the reality of doing it. This is that sort of thing though in a very different tone. And that resonated with me. Also, when she gets back from the cold and Wolverine pushes her through it, she's in a hot bath. And then she's meditating or reflecting on it. And she realizes what Wolverine was doing, which kind of counteracts some of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. About how she realizes that she's being pushed and that she has to do it. And as she's continuing this training, she's losing Ogun's training. So she's actually becoming less capable as a martial artist. Well, it's more convincing when you tell me than when I was reading it. <laughs> maybe again, I was... I, I felt it all when I was reading it, so that's interesting. Maybe maybe when I was reading it, I was reading it too much in light of what I felt about magic and that story. Well, because I feel like in a lot of ways, this is an apology for the magic story in taking a lot of those ideas, but twisting them to be more not as grim and not as dark and actually more accessible and it's a better story this story is certainly better written than magic i i have to say overall the end of this issue is her holding the sword up and realizing like she doesn't have to focus on holding the sword up she just kind of has to do it And, and by being lighter at it lighter at it in mind and spirit that's when something clicks for her that's when she kind of regains it. And that's the thing, is in a way she regains a bit of her innocence, a bit of her childhood, much like magic. Ogun's trying to take away Kitty's innocence and childhood and all that as uh, Magic's was stolen by Belesco. So we have that parallel. And as we go through this, we see Kitty kind of regain more of herself as opposed to Magic, who effectively lost see i i see them both as stories of someone who gets 
torn down in a kind of torture, brainwash, physical way by by two different people. And both stories have that, or maybe three different people in Magic Ileana. But um, that to me, this is a, you know, maybe because you've experienced more martial arts, you know, it's really good. But to me, it's a it's a fallacy of a way to become a, a strong, good person. <laughs> well, I don't think it's necessarily a martial arts thing. And it's more a way to um, to lose a sense of yourself and give yourself over to, I don't want to say a higher power. I'm not sure what to say. But. Well, no, but I don't think this is a martial arts thing necessarily. I think there's certain points where a person has to overcome adversity and that which is hard in order to grow and do better and realize more about themselves and what they're capable of. And it's never easy. It's never necessarily pretty, but it happens. And Wolverine's pushing, and maybe he's pushing a little too hard. I, I think you'd be right in most circumstances, but because he's basically preparing her for the fight of her life, you know, within a week, yeah, he's pushing a little harder. Well, does he know she's going to have to fight him? I guess that wasn't clear. Yeah, she, he does 100%. And that's a big part of the narrative that he talks about with Mariko. Because she says basically that he's pushing too hard. And why are you even dealing with this with Kitty? And Wolverine says, because we have to. Time is of the essence and we have to deal with this now. And she has to fight with this. It's also part of the reason why they point out that because it's a mental thing they she could run to professor xavier and essentially get it done but he says if you do that you've lost because you let ogun win by just running away and forcing others to deal with it rather than you dealing with it yourself and overcoming it and pushing through it and getting it done because if you just have it essentially wiped away you never actually beat him you let him beat you it's a big part of the narrative and a big part of the spirit of this comic because claremont realized the kind of like out that was potentially there but realized that because as much as this is kitty pride and wolverine this is the kitty pride show right wolverine is a character in her story right and but he's the one that needs to be there he's the one who needs to be the mentor and this is part of the reason why he became the mentor for like three young ex-women and more throughout his run as he went on because of i think this mini now that i'm reading it like there, there's something so potent here about that idea and for those who have had to deal with some harder stuff and i mean especially i, I don't know there, there's kind of a balance here of like the fact that claremont did two of these stories back to back as much as he's celebrated as a feminist writer in a lot of ways, I, I think this kind of creates a trope that's not necessarily great. But the way it's handled here is so much more deft and whatnot that I think a lot more people, and especially women, can relate to it, where you kind of see the older man taking advantage versus the older man who's pushing you to do better, and like that's a big deal. It would be great to get a, a woman's take on these two miniseries. <laughs> That's fair, and I can't. Because we can't really say what a woman, how a woman would feel about it. True. My instinct is this is a thing that Chris Claremont likes, this concept of breaking down a young girl to toughen her up 
but I don't know if I like it as much as he does. And I don't see, I don't see the nuances you see. Um, but it still was fun to read. And I definitely, I really was really intrigued by this whole devil mask character, Ogun, and what was up there. And, I, and it was really fun to, as it was fun in magic, to see the young girl become more powerful or as powerful. I don't think I, I buy her having any chance against Ogun in any realistic view of this. Um, he's had centuries to become what he is. Well, he's old and slow. He's old and slow, perhaps, except he doesn't look old. Again, uh, I guess that's part of it is like, this feels like such a martial arts thing is like, as much as he's had the training, she's gone through her training too. And she has more fight in her to win it this time. And that's ultimately what gives her the edge. That's what allows her to win a because she's more motivated B because her cause is more just. And that's the sort of thing that actually allows the hero to land the winning strike because a Japanese story is so much more about the strength that comes from within than that that comes from without. And so it fits those themes and ideas there. And it's like, that's a very martial arts movie kind of uh, deal. <laughs> like, yeah. And also this darker turn and a lot of the things that you're pointing to is kind of problematic is also very akin to a number more of like Japanese fairy tales and stories and that sort of thing. Their stories are known for being much more harrowing uh, during the classical tales times than European ones are. Yeah, I guess I'm more familiar with Hong Kong martial arts movies and not the Japanese uh, approach. I did like the cover for issue five, and I love this splash page where Kitty is in her ninja outfit and coming up, phasing up out of the uh, Yakuza's chief's desk. And it looks like a Steve Ditko drawing, actually. So there are moments where where Milgram, perhaps he's... Uh, very influenced by Steve Ditko, but most of the time his, his art doesn't work for me. But that, some of these panels do look like Steve Ditko. Panels. Well, assuming that if you're a Marvel artist, you're going to go to one of two schools of thought, and that is Ditko or Kirby. You know, I definitely would say he's more Ditko than Kirby. I think he's also very Frank Miller influenced. Was anyone not at this point? Well, a lot of people were, yeah. um, but... I'm sure there was plenty who were still just pure Kirby Buscema kind of influence. More so than just random artists of the time. Like he's essentially certain elements of this are essentially a sequel to one of Frank Miller's biggest comics of the time. So I'm sure he was taking notes on trying to be a touch more Miller-esque. So by issue five, she's more, you know, she's in control. She's starting to take down the Yakuza organization. <laughs> I dare say she's more canny. She's can do. There you go. And uh, and she uh, gets a new outfit. This is when she becomes Shadow Cat. Yeah. And paints her eyes and calls herself Shadow Cat. What did you think? Did you like that? That is actually really significant, and I love that because I didn't know when she became Shadow Cat versus kind of Kitty Pride Sprite or whatever. Because that was the big thing about her early on was she was trying on all these outfits. She never really had an identity. 
coming out of this mini, she has a lot more identity. She has a lot more certainty. She's a lot more adult. And that's, this is something where she's not, she's lost her innocence in some way, but she's claiming more for herself in this like new adulthood that's suddenly thrust upon her, which again, I, well, in each of these trilogies of miniseries, I'm sorry, you said yet again, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Oh, as I was going to say, as opposed to magic, where everything's basically thrust upon her, this is her claiming more for herself through this ordeal. But all three of the miniseries, each one was Claremont taking a character and putting them through some changes to make, to, to reshape them to a certain degree for the rest of their history in, um, in the X universe. And so I admire the way he did that. He, he looked at these miniseries as not just a cash grab or something, but a way to really push the characters forward to the next level. Mm -hmm. However, the shadow cat part seems a little more silly to me. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, the actual costume and name. But yeah, that's the curse of Kitty Pride. It, it may, it, the story that was less superhero comic booky suddenly had that sort of intruding for a moment. But anyhow. Okay, yeah. If not a touch intentionally there, though, yeah. Right. He, he does want to, every now and then, let's tag back to the regular X-Men superhero comic to remind ourselves. You know, there, that, this reminds me, just talking about her taking on the Yakuza's and everything. The other weird thing, and maybe because, again, my memories and knowledge is spotty, uh, I thought Mariko was was not going to become a Yakuza mob leader, but she's kind of like the goal of the Yakuza is to take over her businesses. Kind of makes it sound like she did stay in the mafia, so to speak. Uh, she's forever tied to them. She can't escape it. Uh -huh. Whereas supposedly she was from this noble family, and then it turned out, oh, her dad had left the noble path and uh, become a mobster so i guess her path back to true nobility is is uh not as clear as i thought i thought i thought she would be through you know once she took over the family uh the crimes would be well gone. there's a sense there too of the fact uh, of the gender imbalance too like she can't do what a male business leader would do so that that's a factor in there but it's kind of beside the point here i guess she's trying but she's she's still tied to the yakuza in that they're targeting her i guess even if she doesn't necessarily want to be so i don't i, I don't have a lot more to say actually <laughs> i'm trying to remember like in the final issue yeah well i mean the final issue is the cleanup issue at this point where there's this big to do and wolverine and ogun fight and we bring back that fairy tale um but it's kind of the inverse of that fairy tale where instead of them being equal and walk away they're equal but realize they have to fight oh are they equal well that's the fairy the fairy tale says that um but the test of wolves has been their duel uh wherein they learned this was a battle neither could win and so they sheathed their blades and went their separate ways now it's my turn i'm not so lucky right 
Um, and then he says, I'm the best there is, is what I do. Tonight, that isn't good enough. So Ogun is still his superior. That's the way, yeah, that's the way it feels. And there's this whole thing with Kitty. What's a touch interesting, I guess, is after all this being about Kitty, the way the fight is won is that Wolverine goes into a berserker rage and takes out Ogun. All he was was an animal when he was with Ogun. How come he wasn't superior to Ogun before he became more of a human? I just, all of that just seemed messy to me and not, it didn't track well for him. Well, because Ogun wasn't trying to tame him or something. He was training him to be part of society. It, it was about Wolverine wanting to learn more than that. But I mean, knowing that Ogun could take him in a fight as long as he was cogent is there as long as he's his better self the only way wolverine could win was essentially to lose himself and then kitty completes her journey to recovering herself by having the chance to kill ogan but not doing right. it which is also shades of magic who does not kill Belasco. yeah it's the same ending and then logan does kill him and so we've got this weird thing where she's trained to be tough to regain her not toughness i guess and he whatever training he's had makes him able to kill and not her i don't know it just doesn't it left me unsatisfied well so what i do like is that i mean belasco basically just gets away um you know curse you i'll fight you another day because there's no one there to to be the bad guy and kill her kill well but what happens is ogun once he has a moment um goes to kill kitty wolverine shouts phase and he performs the kill shot it's not that he's going to kill ogan it's that it's this last moment you know cross blade one survives and well he tells her to phase so basically he's able to kill him he could have killed him before, actually, I think. Because Ogun's trying to kill Kitty. So he's putting completely into Kitty, and then she phases, and then Wolverine stabs him. That's why he wins, is because Ogun makes a stupid mistake, because he's near death and whatnot. So, And I suppose Ogun will come back alive some point later. Or undead. <laughs> you know, you never stay dead. Undead, okay. And, and then... I think it's important that uh, this book closes with Kitty and um, Yukio's kid at an ice cream parlor, you know, kind of reveling in this kind of like Japan trip moment kind of thing. Because it, it's kind of a reclamation of her innocence in a way, even if it's only a small portion of it. I I think that's a big deal about this and i think that's a big tonal shift that makes it she and and the girl are just like little kids eating a giant dish of ice cream with silly grins on their face yeah <laughs> i liked a lot about this series but it just didn't pay off properly for me so i think it was of these three trilogies i liked the one with frank miller best and the magic one i found a slow read and there was problems with the writing at times but i i found it more coherent than this one for me but you obviously like this one much better yeah this is my favorite do you like it better than the wolverine one it's your favorite of all three of these i think it's the best i think it marks a point too when i feel like claremont turned a corner and went from kind of like the 
bigger X-Men writer to kind of like this next level writer with the X-Men. Because don't get me wrong, I understand his big ones are Days of Future Past and Dark Phoenix Saga, which predate this. I feel like he became a more competent and interesting creator a bit later in his run. And this is around that point. Well, that's cool. Then I'm glad we read this, if only to sort of solidify your own journey through Claremont X-Men. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm still going through it. I'm working my way through X-Men, but I'm thinking I might take some breaks to read some other stuff a bit more because... It's a bit. Yeah, I mean, I still inst- intend to read all the X-Men omnibuses I have, but uh, I definitely put it aside after a while. Um, so maybe I would, I will eventually appreciate this miniseries more as I journey through more um, Claremont X-Men. It sounds like there's a lot of taste pairs and things that just aren't your thing in, in this mini in particular, though I think you'll like some of the later stuff a fair amount. I always think of myself as loving the character Kitty, Kitty Pride. But for that first issue, I just was really bored of her and, and she just didn't seem that interesting to me. And maybe it was because of the setup of the need of the story to go from the sort of innocent teenager, innocent, you know, like, I don't know how old she's supposed to be at this point, but she seemed like a 13 or 14 year old to... Well, that was the point. Right. But to kind of go through that journey with her maybe was the point, but it's it still... It took me, it, it threw me out of the book a bit. And then, and then I was really tuned into all the other things that were for me flaws rather than to the strengths. So next time we're going to go way out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Into your choice. I'm, but I'm very glad that we're going to move away from Marvel comics for a little while. <laughs> Cause while you're a Marvel zombie, I'm not supposed to be one. <laughs> Let's see. It's the first three volumes of Death Note. Death Note, right. Yeah, so I went ahead and bought the th- first three volumes of Death Note. They were on sale. And I've had them for years. For years. And have you read the entire series? I did in a period of a month or something. It was... We'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, it's uh, it's certainly one of the more famous mangas. And when I was towing around, I wanted to do a manga and read that reads a bit of a more famous manga with you and i was trying to pick one and i when i narrowed it down i was kind of between death note and full metal alchemist and i just felt like death note is something that is unlike anything we've read for the show before where as full metal alchemist is great and different enough i just felt like there's something that would be more generative to talk about with death note now uh there's a good chance I won't like it, so I hope you won't be offended. I, I mean, I don't think it's going to be your favorite thing ever, but I think you're going to find yourself intrigued. Okay. Well, anyway, so uh, when we come back to life again, we will talk death. Now. Oh, yeah. But people stay dead in this one. <laughs>